listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 179. This week, we're looking at an extensive investigation of working conditions at Korean electronics giant Samsung. But first, the news. This week, the controversial former secretary of the Puerto Rico Department of Education, Julia Kelleher, was arrested by federal officials after a grand jury returned a 32-count indictment. Also indicted were the former director of the Health Insurance Administration, the president of accounting and auditing firm BDO Puerto Rico, and a subcontractor, as well as a woman who worked as Kelleher's special assistant despite not being a department employee, and that woman's sister who was the owner of a consulting firm, Colón and Ponce. For belabored purposes, we are mostly interested in the charges against Kelleher, whom we've heard about on this show before from Puerto Rico Teachers Union President Mercedes Martinez in episode 149. The corruption charges back up the teachers' union's arguments about the education secretary, that she was uninterested in public education, and mostly interested in lining her own pockets and those of her cronies. The district attorney said, both Kelleher and Avila Marrero exploited their privileged positions as heads of agencies in Puerto Rico. Both defrauded the United States government and Puerto Rico in a contract scheme upwards of $15.5 million. $13 million of that just from the Education Department. The conspiracy charges carry a sentence of up to five years, while money laundering and wire fraud charges carry a sentence of up to 20 years. At the time we spoke a year ago, Martinez of the Teachers Union decried Kelleher's privatization motives, saying, Obviously this is an agenda. It is to fill the pockets of the ones that have too much that want more. While teachers were struggling to reopen schools after the hurricane, Kelleher was paid nearly $20,000 a month in salary. She was, Mother Jones Magazine noted, a former consultant and U.S. Department of Education program manager and was the Secretary of Education of Puerto Rico from January of 2017 to April of 2019, which started right after the hurricane wrecked the island. Because of this scandal, Congressman Raul Grijalva has called for the governor of Puerto Rico to resign. There is obviously a lot more to learn here. We're watching this story as it develops, and we will bring you more. And if you happen to know more, you can always reach us at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org. The Twin Cities area of Minnesota has long been a bastion of progressive reform in the Midwest, but the struggles of its burgeoning community of East African migrants has become a flashpoint in the race and class politics of the region. A group of East African immigrant workers in the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport were abruptly laid off in June from their unionized positions as queue-line and baggage porters. The layoffs were attributed to a change in the vendor contracted by the airport called Innovative Handling Solutions, which is a non-union employer. Notably, all of the workers being replaced were represented by SEIU. Moreover, the haphazard way the switch was implemented, with a workforce of over 30 black workers replaced by a workforce of majority white workers with less than a week's notice, has outraged the community. SEIU Local 26 is arguing that the layoffs violated the Minneapolis Airport Commission's own rules, which prioritize the retention of existing workers when contractors change. Adding insult to injury, the new workers were brought on with a $15 hourly wage, when the workers whom they had unceremoniously replaced had been at the fore 
forefront of the Fight for 15 campaign at the airport for years, and they were only making about $11 an hour. So after the one-two punch of getting fired and replaced by non-union workers, and seeing the pay hike that black workers struggled for end up going to a majority white workforce, workers took their grievances to the Minneapolis Airport Commission at a public hearing, talking about how frustrated they felt by the move. Mengitsu Liamar, who had worked at the airport for over 20 years, stated that he was, quote, both sad and mad that we are being treated this way. It is not right that workers with hundreds of years of experience have been banished overnight. And I can't help but notice that the dedicated workers who lost their jobs all look like me, and most of the people who got the jobs don't look like me. Right as we start winning higher wages at the airport, suddenly we aren't good enough for these jobs. This isn't just wrong, this is discrimination, unquote. I spoke with SEIU Local 20. President Iris Altamirano about the workers' complaints and what kind of accountability they are seeking now. The MAC put in a non-union company and displaced 30 African immigrant workers who are also our members. The interesting thing here is that MAC passed a policy and they're saying that that policy does not apply to them. And they're paying them at $15 an hour when they were paying our union members, now mind you, unions set a minimum wage. So if companies want to pay more, then go right ahead. We would love for you to pay more. But this is a, you know, bottom. And so for over 15 years, we had been working to unionize the airport. We finally got there. And then after much fight, we got our workers at the airport to finally get $10.86. And now they're being replaced with white workers who are making $15 an hour. Yeah, so we're kind of demanding that they cut the contract because they violated their own policies. And, like, we're also filing a human rights charge. And it seems like the commissioner, Lucero, is going to do a commissioner's charge, which is like, ooh, you are really egregious. I mean, is this something that you see a lot in the workplaces that you work with? The thing that's unusual about this particular case is the fact that the replacements were all white workers of workers of color. So usually, right, there's this type of thing happens all the time, but usually the company continues to tap the community that that they were like mostly hiring. So the the issue, of course, is that the Mac union bus, like that's already a big problem for us. So no matter how the workers re- were replaced is still, that's still a fight that we pick, right? Like, um, because it was going from union to non-union. So that's one of the issues. And then what made this especially egregious, right, is the, the, the racial demographic of who was pushed out and who was brought in. And so the human rights commissioner, Lucero, of the state of Minnesota, is paying attention to what's happening at the airport and bringing commissioner charges right. against IHS. That was SEIU Local 26 President Iris Altamirano. California's child care providers are now one step closer to union rights after a bill that would allow in-home day and often night care workers to organize and bargain collectively with the state. SEIU has been working with child care providers for years and has tried to have the state of California officially recognize it as the collective bargaining representative of these child care providers. In that time, there have been five different bills that the legislature has supported, but Governor Schwarzenegger and Jerry Brown, a Republican and a Democrat, had vetoed, citing costs, of course. 
On February 6th, a new bill was introduced, AB 378, which recognizes SEIU as the union for the child care providers and will grant them collective bargaining rights with Governor Newsom if he signs it. According to the union spokespeople, the bill could raise wages for 40,000 child care providers in the state who are primarily women of color. Nancy Harvey, who runs a daycare center in Oakland, told me years ago in an interview that child care providers are exempt from minimum wage requirements. The state agencies that pay for our state subsidized child care, which is what most of them are paid with, sometimes end up two months late with pay. And she and the other care providers often end up keeping the children regardless of whether they get paid. She said, most of us don't have any kind of health care. We don't have retirement. We don't have medical dental vision. With the subsidized program, we're entitled to 10 paid holidays a year. That means if you've been in the business for five years, if you've been in the business for 45 years, you get 10 days. We don't have a voice at the table. We have people making decisions that have no concept of what it's like to walk in our shoes. Years after that interview, $8 an hour is still the average wage, and many of these care providers can't earn enough to stay open. And that also means that everyone who wants to have child care can't find one. There's less than one licensed child care spot available for every four children under 12 with working parents. Only one in seven children who qualified for subsidized child care received services. So this is one of those cases where raising wages for the care workers could clearly benefit the people who rely on them. Improving wages could draw more people to the work, allow them to take better care of themselves, and allow them to keep fewer children and give more individualized attention and education. While bosses, administrators, and politicians expect and tout the natural caring that women who work in these fields provide, Nancy Harvey pointed out that it adds to their exploitation. Kindness is taken for weakness, she told me. This has been true of previous California administrations, which have pitted care workers, not just the child care workers, of course, against the people they care for. Perhaps the new administration will understand things differently? We will keep up with this story. Elsewhere in Minnesota, another group of workers from the refugee community are taking mass action against another major local employer, Amazon. The predominantly East African migrant workforce has been campaigning for fair working conditions and for the right to organize, and they have announced that they plan to strike on Prime Day, July 15th. That's next Monday. Backed by SEIU, the workers, who say they represent roughly 500 employees out of several thousand, complain of harsh, hyper-stressful working conditions, which workers are forced to keep pace with inhuman production targets every day. They are collaborating on the Prime Day action with Amazon workers from Seattle, who are campaigning to pressure the company to do more to address climate change. I talked to Mohammed Hassan, who has been working at the Shakopee Fulfillment Center for the past couple of years, about why he and his colleagues are striking. He described constant time pressure, reporting that workers are scrambling to pack more than 80 orders per hour and don't even get a break from their production timeline during meal and bathroom breaks. For example, we work the 10 hours. If you, even one hour or two hours, for example, if you two hours, uh, that day if you lower than 84 per hour, they give you a warning. Next day if you miss also, they give you a warning. Another day if you miss uh, make uh, 83, they, they fire you then. And that's the really, it's not right because it's a permit, it's an employee uh, for a long time. Whether you work 10 years or one year, it's the same. Respect. Or whether you are a temporary or permit, nothing different. They can fire you anytime. How many workers do you expect of that workplace would actually go on strike? I think it's uh, more than 500. That's my expectation. Out of how many workers total? At the it is uh, 
3,000, something like that. Okay. At this place, um, Shakopee, how different is it from other Amazon workplaces, other fulfillment centers around the country? Are they all pretty much basically operating the same way? What I know, it's only the, the Amazon Shakopee. Okay. But I, I hear it's the same mm -hmm. because I, I saw a couple of months ago, it, uh, the lady come from the Europe. I think it's Bulgaria. Like she complained also, it's the same. And it's a very hard job, really. It's a very hard job. Um, I know the many people who injured in this job and they don't treat really well. And they have uh, what they call, what they call M-care. Mm -hmm. And just they say, do it the eyes, the place that you injured. And that is, it's not fair. How would you like your jobs to be at Amazon? What, what types of working conditions do you think would be fair? Really, I, I know, I work the many places in Minnesota and, and other com many companies and it's uh, what we wanted to see, it's, uh, it is a rate, low rate, and also what we wanted to see is uh, um, the break time, they don't, they, they don't count for rates mm -hmm. because they, they give us a break and we have a right to get the break, baby break one time, and we don't want it to count that, that break for rates, because we are out of the job, we are taking food, and still they uh, counting per hour by catching 84 or more, and that's what we want to have. It sounds like you, the workers experience a lot of pressure just every day on the job, even when they're on break. Um, so, yes, yeah, so. absolutely, yes. There's been an effort to unionize Amazon workers, or at least to organize them, um, in various warehouses around uh, the New York City area, I know. Is that an issue that has come up in Minnesota? Um, I, I know that SEIU is supporting your effort. How close do you think you might be to actually trying to seek a union? Yeah, what we wanted to do is uh, to stand our rights. We have a right. We have to come together and complain and what we the problem we have is amazon one of the major employers of um, people in the local uh, refugee community there because um, they know that that's a major part of the workforce in a lot of these areas of minnesota really yes it's a lot of immigrant people walking in amazon warehouse what is your immediate demand for Amazon? Do you want uh, more talks with the manager? It seems like there were there had been talks, but they hadn't really led to any satisfactory outcome. So, what do you hope comes out of this action? Really, I uh, it's better to Amazon listen employee take the uh, complaining action mm -hmm. for listening, respecting, and sit uh, come to make a meeting and talk to really that's the way we want are you hopeful that this time the talks will actually lead to something uh, i'm not uh, expecting they make that but uh, what i encourage our employee or me myself we still continue whether they uh, make it better or not we have a right to stand our rights that was mohammed hassan an amazon worker at minnesota's shakopee fulfillment center
There's a very good chance that you're listening to this podcast on a Samsung device. And in the world of Android, Samsung Electronics has been instrumental in supplying the gadgetry that keeps us all connected. But the company also runs a vast, opaque manufacturing empire stretching around the globe, run by a secretive circle of South Korean executives that has an enormous amount of both wealth and power. And apparently, little respect for the rights of the people who make up its global labor force. In an extensive investigation spanning nine cities in India, Indonesia, and Vietnam, reporters with the South Korean news outlet Hankyore examined harrowing stories of workers getting sick or dying, reportedly due to the harsh and hazardous working conditions in Samsung factories. And they also explored widespread allegations of systematic abuse of workers who sought to organize their factories. Overall, Samsung operates like a lot of Asian multinationals with huge factories that pay low wages, but it's been particularly vicious in suppressing workers' efforts to organize, as well as covering up horrific health impacts linked to their plants. All the patterns of abuse observed in this series actually echo a long, shameful history of Samsung's abuses in South Korea itself. In recent years, many former South Korean Samsung semiconductor workers have brought cases of cancer associated with occupational exposures to toxic chemicals. Those same practices have now been outsourced to countries that are poorer, where workplaces have fewer safeguards from either occupational illness and injury or from anti-labor oppression. Meanwhile, Samsung is often coddled by governments who are hungry for foreign investment. Although we here in the U.S. are increasingly critical of big tech firms like Facebook and Apple, we don't often hear about the labor system that fuels our digital devices, nor about the Asian multinationals like Samsung that export technology to Western markets. And while Washington might be hammering on China's Huawei for allegedly posing a cybersecurity threat, the Hankyore series illuminates how another household name in electronics might be posing an even bigger threat to global human rights and labor rights, not through our digital firewalls, but on the assembly lines of Asia. I recently spoke with one of the co-authors of the series, Lee Jae-yeon, via Skype from South Korea. She talked about the findings and what they mean for us as consumers as well as workers. In this IPEN report, we found that a Vietnam worker had died at the factory, and there was no explanation as to why she died and what happened after that. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but in Korea, there are like severe leukemia cases among workers at the, uh, the semiconductor plant. And uh, it took them like, I don't know, a decade, a decade to, for the company to acknowledge that it was an occupational disease. So um, we thought we might go to Vietnam ourselves to find out what happened. And then it got bigger because it's not only Vietnam. Samsung operates plants all over Asia, all over Asia. And um, we decided to go to countries where they operate the biggest plants and uh, find out for ourselves if their labor conditions were uh, in the legal boundaries and if they were... They weren't exposed to, you know, chemicals that are dangerous or, you know, if they are, you know, forced to work longer hours and stuff like that. So that's why we conducted like the survey and, um, and we had this survey with 129 workers in three countries. And then those three countries are Vietnam, India, Indonesia. And that's where, like I said, Samsung operates the biggest plants. So, um, we did that and we also did in depth interviews with a few of them. It seemed like a lot of it. There was evidence of, of mistreatment, but also a lot of it was just um, trying to suppress uh, labor organizing, right? So talk about sort of the breadth of the problems that you saw there. In the survey, we met a lot of apprentices in India, and they told us that they are uh, exposed to various mistreatments, like um, they're forced to work if they don't reach their target 
which is like 1,600 cell phones a day. So uh, there is there are two factories in Vietnam, Bắc Ninh and uh, Tianyan, and both at both of the factories, the workers said that fainting was a, a normal issue, which is kind of ironic. And um, they said that a lot of them faint because of the uh, tireless night works. You know, they have night shifts like every uh, week, so um, they work too long. So they they said that they faint a lot. I know that you've done reporting on Vietnamese factories that showed that there was some evidence of health impacts from the work. There are the examples in Korea as well, obviously. Um, did you find any evidence of that in these other factories that you surveyed? Actually, one worker, uh, he's an apprentice in India, a former apprentice, because he quit because of the health issues. And he told us that, you know, you need to wear gloves when you work because you need to protect yourself and you also need to protect the product. And um, because you have to work so fast, you can't wear the gloves. So what happens is your hands are exposed to various cuts from the metals. And uh, he showed us how his hands always like had cuts from the cell phones and uh, they just work like that. <laughs> and what happens is because they have to work so fast in, in the fixed position, Uh, one day he couldn't move his neck, and um, he he went to the health center, and and they said that it's just normal, and, you know, they can't treat it. So um, it shows how uh, they have you know these health problems, and they all think it's just a normal part of the work. I imagine that these countries have their own labor codes and workplace safety laws and things like that. I mean, don't they have authorities that monitor this stuff? You know, what happens when they try to raise a complaint. Samsung factories just don't allow labor unions. So except in Vietnam where, where the government operates a labor union, uh, in India and Indonesia, they, there aren't any labor unions. So the workers, when we ask them, you know, where do you go to if you if you want to, you know, raise, a, raise an issue or, or say that there is a problem, you know, they can't go to anyone. And they say that they have to go to their team leader, which is the management. And, um, They will usually say, like, if you don't want to work, just go home. And, uh, yeah, that's what happens. Is there any independent uh, labor agency, like a Ministry of Labor or something like that? Or are they also um, sort of tending to side with Samsung? Yeah, sure. There are uh, Ministry of Labor and stuff like that. And um, But uh, an NGO in India told us that uh, where Samsung operates a factory, the government uh, designates The area as like a special economic zone and what happens is that they're uh, exempt from the observation of the Ministry of Labor so the Ministry of Labor doesn't really uh, do any work there. What does this say about the kind of power that Samsung wields not only in the workplace but also over the governments of these trade partners or these countries that they invest in? Do we see a pattern here? Because you have three mm -hmm. very different countries, right? The only thing that links them is that they're all in Asia <laughs> and they're all pretty poor. But, uh, you know, what what are some patterns that we see here? Do we see like a systematic agenda that, that is like common across all these Samsung facilities? Right. I don't know if it's, we can call it a systematic agenda, but we can see, we can definitely, definitely see a pattern, which is like, low wages and long work hours and, and how they hire like people like who have just graduated from high school and those young people are like who would work for low wages. 
and they uh, hire them. And there's also a pattern with the government, which we found in Vietnam and in India, uh, which is that uh, they have like very close, um, I guess, collusive ties with the government. And uh, we found a case in India where actually an NGO tried to uh, publish a report on Samsung's labor environment. And um, they were harassed by the police for like nine months. And it turned out to be the work of Samsung. So that clearly shows how you know they are really close ties between Samsung and the government. And you talked about some of the the, you, the mm-hmm. harsh working conditions, but um, mm-hmm. like talk about like the day to day practices because they used um, in some cases they used sort of technology to uh, sort of push this speed up of of the line speed and and then the assembly right. line practices. Um, can you mm-hmm. talk about that? Because it seemed very um, uh, sort of dystopian. <laughs> exactly. Um, a, a former apprentice from India told us that uh, there's a screen in the factory, a really big screen. And you can, and what happens is that on the screen, uh, you can see what everybody's making and how many they're making. So if your number's a little, you know, too small, uh, the team leader will come to you and, and shout in a really loud voice. And, and, you know, just say like, like what I said before, like, if you don't want to work, just go home. You need to speed up. And like I said, they just graduated from high school. So they're very young and they're easily intimidated. So um, that's what happens in the workplace. Yes. I don't know if you can call it technology, but yeah, that's what happens. Given that these practices seem to be widespread in all these facilities, um, can you talk about like why maybe Samsung is so is on such friendly terms with the local governments? Is it simply just that they really want to keep Samsung's business? Um, are there sort of secret deals being cut? Um, what is sort of at the crux of that close relationship? I guess uh, it all comes down to economics because. Um, in Vietnam, it's said that Samsung takes up, uh, I don't know, roughly 25% of all Vietnam's exports, which is really a lot. So the government and its relationship with Samsung, uh, they just need to maintain that uh, favorable relationship with Samsung. And uh, they, I guess they tend to uh, agree to whatever, you know, Samsung demands. How different are the working conditions from what you've seen from your reporting in in, uh, South Korea? Do you Mm -hmm. feel like it's the same or maybe South Korean workers are treated better? I don't know. Well, there is a difference in wages because Korean workers are paid, you know, definitely more than other other workers in other countries. But like I said, there is a uh, very clear pattern among the countries. For instance, like I said, they only hire very young workers. I think it might have to do with the fact that they're easier to control. Also, what Samsung does is they operate uh, dormitories and and buses for the workers. And um, at first, the workers say that this is you know just very nice and very good because they are uh, they can you know just live in the, these dormitories without paying you know rent and stuff like that. But in Korea, it was found that there are very strict rules in the dormitories, uh, which um, which stops the workers from interacting with each other. And I guess that has the aim of, you know, just stopping them from making a labor union or some sort of association. And we found we found the same in other countries. 
And the buses also, they, they make them work longer hours because one worker in Vietnam told us that he didn't need to work overtime at all, but he had to because the bus departs at eight o'clock in the evening and his work finishes at six. So there's like a two hour period of, you know, just nothing. So he has to work every day. He just works two hours of overtime. So when we were talking about these Samsung facilities, like these, these workers, um, it seemed like you, you interviewed both um, male and female workers, but I, I believe that when you, um, the, this, these earlier reports that came out about factories in Vietnam, it was a largely female mm-hmm. workforce. Um, is there a gender right. pattern here? And are there particular concerns um, facing women in these factories? Uh, in Vietnam, there are uh, more women workers than men. Uh, no one knows for sure why Samsung uh, favors female workers. It might have to do with the fact that they tend to uh, obey more, I guess, to team leaders. In India, uh, on the other hand, we couldn't find any female workers, and we could hear from the workers that Samsung doesn't hire female workers. So I don't know what's up with that, <laughs> to be honest. Yes. Mm-hmm. I suppose um, in the Vietnamese factories, it seemed like a lot of the women, they were separated from their children, weren't they? Yes, that's correct. And and a lot of them also experienced problems with miscarriages and, and stuff like that. And that's why the iPad report was uh, focused on women workers. Yes. One of the things I kept thinking about when I was reading about these Samsung factories is that the, it seemed very parallel to what's going on in China with Foxconn, though that is, um, uh, right. ironically, that is uh, the rival of Samsung, mm-hmm. Apple. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like these two global tech giants are just running right. these right. the same <laughs> kinds of factories that are basically dominating the whole uh, manufacturing system in in Asia. Um, Is it sort of like for everyday consumers, like are we just sort of stuck with these two gigantic monopolies, like just just basically dictating the working conditions um, throughout this industry? Well, before answering that question, I I think there is a difference between Foxconn and these Samsung factories because uh, no one has reported that it's you know, difficult to interview, you know, Foxconn workers because they're told not to talk to uh, outsiders or uh, that if you publish a report on Foxconn, you're like, you would be intimidated, intimidated by the police or stuff like that. So it's, I think that's why uh, with Samsung factories, there has been uh, kind of less reporting done. So, yeah, so that's... Is Samsung mm-hmm. in China as well? Uh, yes, but they're closing their factories right now, so not long, much, much longer, no. Do you think that, uh, I don't know if Samsung particularly seeks out um, certain countries because of their low, mm-hmm. uh, you know, labor conditions or low wage, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I assume low wages has a lot to do with it, but do you think that, yes. yeah, I mean, do we see a pattern in the way that um, <laughs> um, labor rights, do we see a pattern in labor rights across these three countries that you reported on? Because it seems like workers there are generally sort of disempowered. Right. I think it has more to do than just low wages because they actually go to countries where the government would be willing to cooperate with them, uh, where they are very desperate for an economic growth. So where they would be willing to bend the rules for Samsung. So they just they don't just want to uh, spend less money. They need those rules bended for them. So I think it has to do with that. So what we heard was that uh, when 
when things get, you know, uh, um, when, you know, Vietnam or India uh, reaches a uh, specific growth level and they're not desperate for that anymore, they'll go to another country. And like what we heard was that they're already looking, looking for uh, some factory premises for in Cambodia. It seems like that is what they did with South Korea, right? I mean, they, they um, after they sort of <laughs> had a lot of labor issues in South Korea, um, did you did we see an acceleration of their movement of facilities over overseas? I don't know if there was a, a acceleration after that, but um, it's a definitely a clear pattern where they just move to a country where there are you know less strict labor laws and and lower wages. Has the number of factory workers in Korea actually diminished? Yeah, it's in, it's been dim diminishing for years, I guess, yes. And they don't produce mobile phones in Korea anymore. They're, they're, there's only one factory in Korea that produces mobile phones. For ordinary um, consumers overseas, I mean, is there anything that can be done in terms of I don't know, some sort of consumer activism or, you know, you're, if, you're, if you're carrying around a Samsung phone, is there basically no alternative but to be supporting indirectly these terrible labor conditions? Right. I think uh, what we heard uh, a lot was, you know, so what's the sol solution, right? Do you have an alternative? You know, and what we want to say is that the, the beginning point is to acknowledge these problems, you know, for all of us to know that there are problems in Samsung factories and they need to be solved. And we aren't even at that point yet. So I think it starts with going to going there and then looking for solutions. Would you say that Samsung's problems are um, sort of unique to Samsung or are these conditions pretty typical um, throughout uh, tech manufacturing in Asia? It is true that a lot of tech factories have problems. When we asked workers, you know, would you be willing to go back to Samsung or, or were you in a better environment at another company? Uh, they all said that they wouldn't go back to Samsung. The working environment was better at other factories. So I, I, I don't have statistics or, or any way to prove this, but, you know, that's what the workers told us. Yeah, certainly. It seems like the busting of labor unions might be um, sort of Samsung's specialty there. So what could possibly break that sort of firewall against labor unions? Because I know that the um, ITC, all these international bodies, have criticized Samsung for maintaining this yeah. anti-union policy. Is there anything, whether it's the uh, host government of these facilities or, you know, the ILO or anything like that, that could work to change this? Oh, definitely. ILO could work to change this. And also the government needs to have to take a step. For most of the problems, Samsung needs to act itself. Well, it seems like a challenge to get them to do that. Um, did did they yeah. respond to your reports? We sent them a list of, I don't know, 15 to 20 questions on on the report, on the facts that we found. And um, what we got was a letter saying that, basically saying that they were doing their best to keep a healthy environment for workers, uh, expanded in like 300, 500 words. So um, <laughs> yeah, that's all the response we got. Is there anything else you wanted to add or will there be future reporting on this or um, anything? Uh, yes, we're also reporting on the, uh, in what happened at the mobile factory in Korea. And, um, uh, I can't 
uh, say, uh, you know, in details yet, but um, there have been some occupational health problems there. So you might want to keep a close watch on that also. Uh, it's also very significant because in India or Vietnam, these workers worked there for only like two or three years. So they leave before any of the serious health problems even rise to the uh, surface. But in Korea, uh, workers work for a longer time, so they experience more serious health problems. That was Lee Jae-yeon, reporter with Hankyore in South Korea, talking about Samsung's abuses. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. If you've been following me on Twitter this week, you're probably not surprised that the piece I chose this week is about the Women's World Cup team and their the U.S. team's victory in France. The piece is called, After a World Cup Victory Like No Other, One Chant Stands Out for the U.S. Women, Equal Pay, at the Washington Post by Liz Clark. Clark's piece focuses on the team's victories on and off the field. The U.S. women's team was dominant, as they were last time in this tournament, but what overshadowed this World Cup was that three months before the tournament kicked off in Paris on June 7th, as Clark writes, the members of the U.S. women's team sued their employer, the U.S. Soccer Federation, for gender discrimination, citing wages and working conditions that are inferior to those of their less successful male counterparts. Clark writes, in doing so, the athletes knowingly and deliberately made their burden greater heading into the World Cup. Whether the lawsuit was a post-match talking point or not, and it rarely was, each goal and each victory the U.S. women scored became a statement about their prowess on the field and their leverage off of it. Chants of equal pay, equal pay rang out from the stands in the delirious aftermath of Sunday's U.S. victory, leaving no doubt about how soccer fans would rule if they were judge and jury of the legal proceedings. Within seconds, the hashtag equal pay spiked fivefold on Twitter, according to a company official. I know it can seem like a little much to talk about women at the top of their game making equal pay to the men. And I know that somebody listening to this is going to say, well, the men make more money. But the U.S. men's team has never made it past the quarterfinals in a World Cup. The U.S. women have won four of them two in a row. They are unquestionably the best at what they do, and they deserve at least to be paid like it. As Megan Rapinoe, the U.S. team's star and most outspoken member, famous for, among other things, being the first white player of either gender to take a knee during the national anthem following Colin Kaepernick's stance, pointed out in a piece for the Players' Tribune, they don't work out at private facilities. They don't fly private flights. They belong to the neighborhood gym and they have to work out largely on their own because they are not paid like full-time athletes and yet expected to be elite athletes who are, well, capable of giving out performances like the ones we just saw. Watching them celebrate has been not just a victory for, you know, the USA. It's been a victory for a team that has demanded the respect that they deserve for being what they are, which is absolutely world-class athletes. And when they won, Liz Clark wrote, there was so much to celebrate. The World Cup trophy they had trained, sacrificed, and longed for for so many years. The right to compete against the world's best. The right to fight for their beliefs, to take unpopular stances, and as professional athletes to be fairly compensated. 
My pick for this episode is called Democratic Candidates Are Ignoring One of the Year's Biggest Labor Disputes by Kelly Goff. It appears in The Nation. Writers, even those who write about labor issues, aren't always that keen on thinking of themselves as workers. But the ink-stained wretches of the world are, in many ways, your average proletariat working stiffs. They worry about bringing in steady income, and even when they're freelancers, they're often beholden to editors and agents who broker their talent and let corporations take a big cut. In Hollywood, the rarefied world of script writing is often seen as a pretty plush gig, but it's still a hustle to many writers, even those working on big shows. And as we've seen in recent years, screenwriters are sometimes driven to engage in direct action when contract talks are at an impasse. Goff writes about another labor dispute brewing on the horizon between the Writers Guild of America, WGA, and the Association of Talent Agents, and how leading Democrats, even in supposedly liberal Hollywood, seem to be siding with entertainment corporations rather than rank-and-file creative workers who bring the big shows to the small screen. WGA has been in talks with the Association of Talent Agents for a new general contract for writers for over a year, but there's currently a standoff. At the crux of the dispute are so-called packaging fees. Whereas traditionally, talent agents have procured writers' work and earn commission when they broker jobs for their clients. In recent years, large agencies have begun demanding packaging fees, which provide them, in many cases, with a larger cut by treating the agents as co-producers. Goff writes, quote, Because packaging fees come from a production budget, agents are positioned to earn more on a project than their own clients, which is why this model has evolved into the primary way large agencies do business, becoming corporate behemoths in the process. Basically, it seems like a lot of Hollywood rent-seeking at the expense of struggling writers. Now, the agents have taken their deal-making to the next level by launching their own production companies. This places the talent agencies, which are supposed to act as advocates of writers, in the same boat as the big production companies with which they're supposed to be negotiating job contracts. Goff notes that the arrangement, while perhaps still nominally legal, reeks of conflict of interest, or at least cast doubt on the idea that agents are on the side of the writers, who at the end of the day will be paying the talent agent's salaries out of their own paychecks. It's kind of like having a financial advisor who is in cahoots with fund managers. Goff also points out that, quote, this is particularly debilitating to writers from underrepresented groups. If you've written a lead role for a black woman, but are told you must choose an actor your agency represents, that can stall a project indefinitely, unquote. Or you might be in the opposite position, where you've cultivated a relationship with the production company and are in the position to deal with them directly, but your talent agent still gets a hefty cut of your pay for a packaging fee that essentially didn't package anything at all. Luckily, writers do have a real-life advocate trying to seek a better deal on their behalf. It's called a union, and they have marshaled the writer's collective power by threatening to refuse to deal with the agencies that do not sign a code of conduct, which would safeguard writers' right to fair pay. The agencies have struck back with a lawsuit, charging that the union, quote, organized a group boycott and unlawful restraint of trade, unquote. Basically, they accuse the union of acting like a bunch of racketeers. But the clincher, writes Goff, is a radio silence of leading Democrats. Yet those politicians are perfectly willing to stand up for workers in hard hats and overalls in the Rust Belt when their votes depend upon it, right? But they seem to pay scant attention to the plight of working writers. Goff thinks it's because the entertainment giants are bankrolling the campaigns of many Democratic candidates, including Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. She adds, quote, It's also possible presidential campaigns don't consider writers as politically useful as striking auto workers or firefighters. At the end of the day, though, this isn't about pitting one component of the working class against another. Chains Smoking, hypercaffeinated, ink-stained wretches may not be the sexiest poster children for the labor movement, okay. But who is going to write the stories of our time, the narratives that capture our current political tenor? 
Who supplies the comic relief and the acerbic satire that we need to cut through the vapid news coverage? And who is going to bring the stories of the underrepresented, as writers of color have done for many shows and films across generations, exploring issues of race and inequality that often white writers don't even contemplate, let alone broach in their content. Writers, in the end, have amplified the voices of communities that the bourgeois, largely white world of Hollywood, would otherwise have never really seen as human. For the workers who inscribe the humanity of the other on our popular culture, it's time for their talent and their labor to be valued as a truly creative public asset. You've been listening to the Scent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit thescentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>